0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, Pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. I only know of two announcements tonight. Number one is that this coming Saturday we're having the uh, ladies' prayer brunch at 11 o'clock here. So if uh, you're going to be here, there's a sign-up sheet out in the kitchen. You can sign up uh, what you're going to bring and so they know how many people are going to be here. And the second announcement is that if you show up here next Tuesday night, you might think the rapture occurred. You'd be wrong, but uh, we will not have Bible class next Tuesday night. That is because I will be leaving to go to a, a funeral. My uncle uh, passed away back in back in August, and he was a, um, he was a career Air Force officer, retired as a lieutenant colonel back around 1966. And during his career, he had quite a number of uh, interesting adventures. Um, and one of the most notable is that when he was uh, uh, when he was flying out of the uh, China Burma India Theater. He, had, uh, he drew upon his previous experiences as a 15-year-old crop duster out of Houston uh, to develop the strategy of low-level bombing. We're talking about dro- dropping bombs 150 to 200 feet uh, off the ground as they uh, were trying to figure out how to bomb that narrow-gauge railroad that the Japanese were building uh, through Burma that is uh, made famous in the film The Bridge Over the River Kwai. And he was uh, he was flying in with his uh, squadron. He was a squadron commander, and they were coming in. And he saw one of their uh, bombers had been shot down. The Japanese were bayoneting all the uh, men as they came off. So after they dropped their load, they circled back around, and he ordered his gunners to sh- to uh, machine gun all the Japanese. And then he t- they took a uh, 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 an aircraft around into the cockpit, which all but blew off his co-pilot's arm and so and it pretty much disabled his right arm so between him and he with his uh, bombardier managed to get the uh, co-pilot safe and then he flew uh, 5 hours back to their base in India he got the a silver star and a purple heart for that he flew i mean he flew nixon to Moscow in 1956, he flew LBJ to Africa. When Khrushchev came back, came to the U.S., he flew Khrushchev around. He flew Eisenhower around. He was the actual pilot in strategic, the film Strategic Air Command, and not Jimmy Stewart, even though he was the star. So, and he was a great storyteller, and he's, I got, my my mother had two brothers, one was killed in World War II, and uh, so, uh, my dad's an only child, so we've got a really small family. And uh, he was always just—he was just a great hero. And he flew a lot of uh, secret missions uh, in Vietnam and a lot of other things. He was a Strategic Air Command uh, pilot and retired. And then he flew for United for un- until he was forced to retire. So they'll be burying him at Arlington National Cemetery on the 15th with full military honors. And the Air Force has said they're going to do a flyover. However, it's supposed to be 60-70% chance of snow next Wednesday, so maybe we'll not have that and they'll be able to uh, do the flyover, but uh, I don't want to miss that, so I'll be flying up there, and uh, there's no way I can go to be there for that and and be here Tuesday night as well, so I decided not to go to pre-trib uh, this year, uh, which would would mean I would be in Dallas right now so that I would be able to take uh, next Tuesday night off and go to uh, fly up to. Uh, DC for that so that's why we're doing the schedule the way we are the only other thing that I know of uh, just to prepare you for January I'll be leaving on January the 5th to go to Kiev and then I will be back on the 21st and uh, during that time uh, we will have Sunday class but we will not have midweek classes while I'm gone uh we had a board meeting a couple of weeks ago and came to that, uh, con- that decision, so uh, that'll get us through January, so you can just kind of have that time to go back and review a lot of uh, older lessons. All right, let's uh, take a few moments for silent prayer, make sure we're ready to uh, per- spiritually prepare to study the Word, make sure we're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word that uh, informs us of so much, and that your word is sufficient for every area of life, every every area of thought, every area of our involvement that challenges us, encourages us, strengthens us, and and uh, rebukes us in the areas in which we're wrong. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, continue to study in reference to the material we'll cover in the book of Acts and coming to understand. The general teaching related to your kingdom, uh, that we, that forms such a background for the book of Acts. We pray that we can have clarity this evening as we study through these uh, key passages and that we might be uh, spiritually, uh, strengthened and prepared and encouraged because of that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time I started with a study on the kingdom of God in Acts 1-3. Uh, we're told, as Luke summarized what he had said at the end of of the Gospel of Luke, that he had uh, related to Theophilus all that Jesus had begun to do and teach uh, from the day that he began until the day he was taken up into heaven, and that from the time that he had ascended, I mean, from the time that he had been raised from the dead until he ascended, he taught the disciples many things concerning the Kingdom of God, and that 's in acts one three and in acts one six we 're told that just before he left, uh, the disciples had one last question, which was, "Tell us, Lord, is this the time that you're going to uh, establish your kingdom?" and he didn 't rebuke them, uh, he didn 't rebuke their notion of a kingdom their their idea was clearly a physical geopolitical kingdom. Of Israel with a Davidic ruler. He doesn't rebuke them for that. He doesn't say, no, you, you've got this wrong idea about the kingdom. It's not going to be a physical kingdom, a literal kingdom. It's going to be a spiritual kingdom, and I'm just going to reign in your hearts. He doesn't challenge their concept of the kingdom. What he does say is, it's not for you to know when I'm going to establish that kingdom. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. So, that sh- the, these two verses, Acts 1-3 and Acts 1-6, show us that during this time between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus focused on doctrines related to the what we'll see tonight are the mysteries related to the kingdom of God. Now, last time I pointed out that the phrase kingdom of God was really used in two broad ways. I mean, in two ways. One is a broad way. One is a more specific way. The broad way has to do with God's sovereign rule over his creation. God's sovereign rule over his creation. As the creator, he rules over all that he has created, and that in one sense is the kingdom of God in a universal sense. In a more specific sense, you have what theologians call the theocratic rule of God from the word theocracy, meaning God ruling, and that manifests itself on the earth in three time periods one in the garden of eden the second in the early stage of israel's history from the time of the giving of the mosaic law until the rejection of god as the king by the uh, israelites in first samuel uh, chapter 8 and then the third period is yet future when jesus rules from jerusalem the literal throne of David, over a reestablished uh, kingdom of Israel in what we refer to as the Messianic or the millennial, uh, millennial Kingdom. Now, last time, in terms of review, I'm not going to review every point. Uh, we've got the um, normal projectors and things up at uh, pre-trib uh, for for their use, so we just have our backup projector and one screen tonight, so you just have to look over here to my uh, to my left. And I had pointed out last time that the kingdom of God, these two aspects, the eternal timeless aspect and the theocratic manifestation. In terms of the, time, uh, the, uh, the timeless uh, aspect, I want to focus on, I'm going to skip through a couple of slides here. I used went to the universal aspect of the kingdom. I went to two passages in Daniel, if I can get there. There we go. Daniel four seventeen and Daniel four twenty five. So turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter four. Daniel is crucial for understanding the kingdom. And in Daniel chapter two, we have the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, where he dreams of this huge golden statue. Uh, That is really, or this huge statue rather, that has a head of gold and a chest and upper torso of silver and then a waist uh, area of bronze and then legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And that is a picture of the history of the kingdoms of man in its various manifestations, the various uh, human empires that are going to dominate uh, world history. That's in Daniel chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel. Uh, uh then daniel chapter 3 we have the story of the uh, image of gold that nebuchadnezzar built that uh uh that is the had everybody bowed down to and that's where you have the story of the uh, fiery furnace but in the fourth chapter uh nebuchadnezzar was warned by god that he was becoming too arrogant and he had this another dream, and Daniel interpreted it and said that it was a warning that if Nebuchadnezzar didn't humble himself under the authority of God, that God would reduce him to the level of an animal for the next seven years who would live out in the fields, and that he would just eat grass like the uh, beasts of the field, and God would teach him who was really in authority. And so you have these two verses where the emphasis is, Uh, on the the dream and on this event, that it was designed to teach that the living, verse uh, 17, that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. That must have just made uh, Nebuchadnezzar quite proud that he's referred to in this category of the lowest of men. So this aspect of a kingdom, the kingdom of man juxtaposed to the kingdom as the rule of God, is at the very core of all of these visions that we have in Daniel because they lay out the conflict that will eventually come about as the kingdom of God in terms of the messianic kingdom is going to be established on the earth. So that sort of takes us up to, I'm going to skip through these slides real quick, that takes us up to where I stopped last time, which is on point number nine. Now, one thing I want to point out in this chart is in the church age period, this is the period known as the mysteries, not a mystery form of the kingdom. Uh, Within dispensational theology, within dispensationalists and their teaching, There are some that believe we live in a mystery form of the kingdom, but that what kingdom is that? That cannot be the messianic kingdom. And so things get real fuzzy there. And yet we don't have that word form in Matthew chapter 13 especially, which I'm going to focus on this evening. Rather, Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm going to teach you the mysteries of the kingdom, that is, Mystery always refers to unrevealed truth. Now, Jesus is going to reveal to the disciples information about this coming kingdom that had never before been revealed. And what he's going to re- reveal to them is that, there, that before that kingdom is established, there are going to be certain things that will characterize the intervening age, which is the age in which we live. The age in which we live is not a spiritual form of the kingdom. It's not a mystery form of the kingdom. The kingdom, meaning the messianic, Davidic kingdom, is not in in existence in any form. Jesus is not on any throne. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He is not seated on his throne, doesn't receive his throne until uh, he comes back until the end of the tribulation period, which is what I want to focus on um, tonight. And that's part of the ninth point, which relates to the title Son of Man. So let's turn over a couple more chapters to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel chapter 7 is a chapter we've gone through a number of times. we covered it in detail, both in the Daniel study and again in the Revelation study. And in Daniel chapter 7, uh, Daniel sees these, these, these same kingdoms revealed again in a dream in terms of the, the, the kingdoms of man sees these same empires, but now they're, they're portrayed in a bestial way. They're portrayed by these beasts. So he has this dream. He sees these uh, beasts coming up out of the ocean. Verse 3, these four great beasts came up out of the sea. Uh, one is like a lion. One's like a bear uh, raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. The uh, uh, third is like a leopard with uh, four heads and four wings. And then the fourth beast is an indescribable beast. And then he says, at the end of all of that, he says, I was considering the horns, that is, the ten horns on the fourth beast. This is in Daniel 7, verse 8. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one that came up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out. And that refers to the Antichrist establishing his kingdom. And then in verse 9, Daniel says... I watched till the thrones were put in place. That's the thrones, the authorities in the, in the Antichrist kingdom. And the, then he says, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Now the Ancient of Days is God the Father. His garments were white as snow. Half his hair was like, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame. Its wheels are burning fire. And then he says, and Then a fiery stream issued and came forth from him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Now, we haven't seen the kingdom yet. We've seen the human kingdoms and the manifestation of that. And then there is this judgment that takes place that is indicated by the court being seated and the books are opened. Now, this is the same imagery that you have In Revelation 4 and 5, if you remember, when John is uh, suddenly is taken up into heaven and he sees one sitting on the throne, that's the Ancient of Days of God the Father, and he has this scroll in his hand, and and the the search goes on, who is worthy to open the scroll? Well, that's the book that's here, so that's the time frame. It's uh, at the final uh, judgment upon the earth. And so verse eleven we read, and I watched then, because of the sound of the pompous words, which the horn was speaking, this is the Antichrist. I watched till the beast was slain, its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives are prolonged for a season and time. And then he says, "And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now, as I've gone through that, uh, I don't want you to become confused. Daniel, this vision isn't trying to give a rigid chronology of the events in the tribulation period. It is pointing out sort of in, in little snapshots things that happened during that uh, judgment time that there's the Ancient of Days on the throne. Uh, there's books before him that will be used for judgment. Uh, these uh, ten horns or these kings, the Antichrist, the little horn, are going to speak uh, pompous words. Their, their dominion is uh, then taken away. And it is at that time that one like the Son of Man appears. And so this one who is the Son of Man, that's a messianic title. He comes with the clouds of heaven. And he then, it is at that time, then, after the Antichrist, all these things happened, then to him was given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So the point that I'm making is that the king, the son of man, is the future king, and the Son of Man as the future king is not given his kingdom until after these events that take place in the tribulation are over with. So it's not till the end of the tribulation that the Son of Man is given his kingdom. Until then, what's he doing? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Psalm two talks about the fact that He is the the Anointed One, and He is waiting as the armies of of the kings of the earth gather themselves against the Lord and His Anointed. And that, so that depicts the antagonism, the opposition to God, uh, leading up to the uh, Battle of Armageddon. So it's not until that takes place that you have the kingdom being given. To the Son of Man, so Daniel 7:13 depicts this, and uh, 7:13 down through 7:13 uh, uh, to 7:14. Now, why is it important that he's called the Son of Man? That takes us back to the the he's the the ideal human. He is the ideal human, not in a platonic sense of ideal, not in some sort of human romantic sense of the ideal man but in the sense of God's uh, original intent for mankind. This is why I have up here the second verse from Genesis 126, which takes place when God created the human race and said, let us, a reference to the Trinity, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man was created to rule over everything on the planet. That's not a green doctrine, by the way. You know, the greenies don't like that doctrine. Uh, Man is is supposed to be part of everything else, but the Bible says that man is to rule over everything. But what happened? Man really trashed the planet, when he disobeyed God. And that is the cause of everything else. And so until that root problem of sin and disobedience is dealt with, man can't solve the environmental crisis. That's a whole new doctrine of of the environment for you. Uh, Man can't solve the environmental problem because the environmental problem has its root in a constitutional defect in the human race called sin. And it is not until the ideal ruler The God-man who is sinless comes that he can roll back the effects of the curse on the planet and on, on the creation. And so Genesis one twenty six to twenty seven gives us our doctrine of God's original intent for man, and since man fell and can't fulfill that purpose, God sent his son to become a human being to fulfill that original ruling dominion destiny. Notice in Daniel seven twenty four it says that to him was given dominion. But dominion was originally given to Adam, Adam lost it. Satan, because of his deception, became the prince and the power of the air, the god of this age. And so it is not until he is defeated that the kingdom then is, and the dominion is then transferred uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's important. There's two things we learn here. Number one is the ideal man is called the son of man. This is one of the most common titles that Jesus used referring to himself uh, during the period of his incarnation. And the second thing is that he is the one who fulfills the destiny of man, and he doesn't get the kingdom until after this future rebellion against God takes place and, it, and the kingdoms of man are, are finally destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon. Now that takes us to the tenth point from last time. I didn't get there. I just stopped at the eighth point. And this takes us to the message of John the Baptist. Now, what I've established in the first nine points is that the Old Testament teaches, in light of the covenant with David, that God promised him an eternal dynasty, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom, that the Old Testament teaches a doctrine of a future perfect kingdom in Israel that was a literal kingdom that would be ruled by a literal physical descendant of David, which means he has to be human, but that that physical descendant of, of, um, of David was also God because he is viewed as eternal, and we know that from other, other passages. So there's this promise of the kingdom, but what happened to Israel? After David, well, you go through what we've, what we've seen in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and it's just, you know, they, they just go on this downhill slide until they just absolutely implode, and they're destroyed, first the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom by the, uh, by the Babylonians. And when they, uh, well, a small group returns with Zerubbabel after the Babylonian captivity, they, the, even though there, there's a, political cohesion there for a while. It just doesn't have, uh, the strength and the power and the authority that's anything related to what had been promised in the Old Testament. And then they are defeated in 63 BC by Pompeii and they become a client state of Rome until AD 70 when God, when God judges them. So John the Baptist shows up on the scene and John the Baptist begins with a message that is tied to this kingdom promise from the Old Testament. And in this message, in Luke 3, just trying to focus on Luke a little bit, because uh, that's the first part leading up to the book of Acts. Luke 3, 8 and 9 states, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, uh, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. That's a picture of judgment on the production. The the, the tree is the production of this um, Jewish culture that has basically rejected God, gone into the idolatry of legalism. I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit, and this is not talking about application of doctrine. This is talking about teaching. Fruit in so many passages in the Gospels is talking about the content of their message, not the uh, activities in their life. Uh, Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, That's an indication, uh, metaphorical language for indicating judgment. And where did John get this idea? He picks it up from Micah. So while we're in the Old Testament in Daniel, I want you to turn towards the uh, Old Testament. We have Hosea, Joel, Amos, uh, Obadiah, Jonah, and then Micah. And Micah chapter 3, or chapter 4 rather, Micah chapter 4. Now, Micah 4 focuses on this future reign of the Messiah. Now, he's not always called the Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word, Mashiach, meaning the anointed one. There are passages such as Psalm 2 that refer to this future king as the Messiah. There's about five or six, only about five or six passages in the Old Testament that specifically designate him as the Messiah. Let me tell you about a little interesting trend that's going on today. This is just shows you how how crazy our world has become. Last two weeks ago, this is another another story coming out of my trip to. Uh, to the uh, Evangelical Theological Society meeting in Atlanta, uh, there was a professor from a rather well-known uh, seminary up in Dallas and. Uh, and. <clears throat> uh, He was giving. He gave a paper. Now I did not go to his session, so I didn't. I didn't hear his his uh, talk, but I've ordered the soundtrack. But he gave a report, or his a paper on, and basically that there there's no messianic prediction in the Old Testament. Can you believe that? No messianic prediction. I didn't even know this was an issue, except for the fact that about two weeks before that. Uh, three weeks before that, I was talking with uh, Tommy Eisen. A new book had just come out on the Messianic Hope by a guy by the name of Michael Rodelnick. And Rodelnick was, uh, I didn't know him, but he was a he was at Dallas at the same time I was in the late 70s. And he is now the head of the uh, Jewish Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute. And he has a very interesting story in that he was, um, his parents were both Holocaust survivors. And then they were Orthodox Jews. And when he was in high school, when he was a teenager, his mother became a Christian. And so his father began divorce proceedings against his mother. And so as a uh, somewhat precocious, intelligent, reactionary, rebellious young person, uh, Michael decided to prove his mother was wrong. And after a, a, uh, a while of studying all of the issues and everything, Michael became a Christian, and eventually this happens now and then, as we know. And um, so eventually he went to Dallas Seminary, and he uh, specialized in this. And what he relates in this book is Tommy told me, uh, he called me up and said, hey, Werdelnik's got this new book out, blah, 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 I ordered it, started reading it. And the first chapter, he's talking about all of, the, of these seminary professors and Bible college uh, professors now that are teaching, now that are probably baby boomers, I just think that the baby boomers spoiled everything. Um, that he's talking about how it has become more almost normative in what were in, in seminaries that taught the opposite up till maybe 20 years ago to, in, to deny the fact that there's any real messianic prediction in the Old Testament. I, I just can't believe it. So I'd already been alerted to the issue when I uh, heard about Gordon Johnson's paper at uh, at ETS, and that uh, I think Randy Price came pretty close to having a stroke as he sat there listening to it because he just couldn't believe how far off base somebody from Dallas Seminary had become. But it is uh, it's it's pandemic in evangelicalism to to say this and. In fact, uh, Rudelnik relates in his book that he's had numerous conversations with evangelical theologians who... Don't want to believe his testimony that he went back to the Old Testament and he, he was studying everything that was said in the Old Testament about Jesus, as the, about the Messiah and, what, and the messianic predictions, that he realized that Jesus fulfilled over a hundred of these prophecies and that meant that Jesus had to be the Messiah. And they say, no, you're wrong. That can't happen. We don't, we don't believe your testimony. Because it doesn't fit their theology. Anyway, that's just a little window on how really messed up evangelicalism has become. I had one person in the congregation email me on a different issue, different story, but the concluding question was pretty much the same, and that was, Are we really alone? Yeah, the answer, unfortunately, the answer is pretty much, and it's going to get lonelier. We, I have seen such a fragmentation. Take place in the last forty years in what was for in a broad sense what was the sort of the standard uh, Dallas seminary dispensational theology that had uh, stayed firm and it 's not just dallas i mean this this uh, was the theology that you found at, at uh, Moody Bible Institute and uh, Biola out in Los Angeles, uh, Talbot Seminary, uh, Western Conservative Baptist Seminary up in Portland, and all of these other evangelical schools, and it has fragmented into a thousand pieces in 40 years. I never would have believed that it would fall apart this much, this fast. And how many different views there are now, uh, I mean hundreds of different views contradictory views that didn't even exist 30 years ago. And so uh, it, it's it's just absurd how how this has happened and it all sort of becomes accepted. So we live in a in a in a very crazy world. So the point that I'm making here is that you do have a consistent theme in the Old Testament and even though you only have the phrase messiah a few times It's enough to identify that the anointed one, the Messiah, is clearly identified as this descendant of David who will reestablish a kingdom in Israel and it will be a perfect utopic kingdom that will last forever. That's what I tried to do in these first nine points You just hit the high points there, that there is a loud and clear kingdom promise in the Old Testament. And then with the close of the Old Testament canon, there is just this, this period of expectation that settled over, uh, Israel and the Jewish people, the kingdom of, of Judah during that intertestamental period. And then all of a sudden, onto the scene, in approximately 30, early 30 or late 29 uh, B.C., you have this, this strange figure out in the desert who wears, uh, camel cloth, camel hair, clothes, and eats locusts and honey, and proclaiming this this message, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But part of that message is Luke eight. He says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. That is, changing the, what they believe and what they teach in light of repentance. And we've gone over this so much, I hesitate to even go back to Deuteronomy 30, verse th- verses 2 and 3, when God says that after he has taken Israel out of the land, Then there will come a time when they will turn back to them. That's that word that is translated repentance here. It's the same idea, that, and that's what is being talked about here. You can't understand John's message of repent or turn back to God if you don't understand what the promise was in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that God says, when my people who are called by my name turn back to me, then I will bring them back from all of the lands where I have scattered them, and reestablish them in the land that I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So John's message is that message that now's the time to turn. And, and it, the language reverberates with, with Deuteronomy in the background. And so Micah 4-7 is one of those Old Testament passages that emphasizes this future reign. And so, uh, God reveals to, to Uh, Micah, starting in verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now this is the latter days of Israel's time frame. So that would put us into Daniel's 70th week. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. This is indicated by the fact that Ezekiel teaches that there's going to be this massive uh, earthquake that's going to rise up, this new mountain uh, in in Jerusalem that will be the base for the millennial or the messianic temple, the, the, the temple that is described in Ezekiel chapter 40 and following. This mountain of the Lord is the same mountain of the Lord that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 2, and Isaiah and Micah were... Uh, contemporaries, They lived at the same time. In Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah said that all the nations will come to the mountain of the Lord to worship. So we're talking about a messianic kingdom context. So Micah says that the uh, mountain of the Lord's house uh, will be elevated above the hills. The people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go uh, to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob he will teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths for out of Zion. The law shall go forth in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. We've heard that before, right? That's in uh, Isaiah 2.4, and it's the time of of peace uh, that will uh, come in the millennial kingdom, and not until then. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks, and nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now that verse, the Isaiah verse, is in, in carved over the entryway to the United Nations building in New York. And what that shows you is the UN self-consciously has established themselves as the organization that will bring in this world peace. They have claimed for themselves a messianic role. That's why the UN should be rejected by Bible believing Christians. They they have taken upon themselves uh, the role that the Bible assigns only to only to the Messiah. Now we read on, goes on in verses four and five to describe the glories of that time. And then in verse six, in that day, says the Lord, which is that day uh, the, the establishment of this, the messianic Davidic kingdom. In that day says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, those whom I've afflicted. That's referring to Israel. I will make the lame a remnant and, and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. So here we have deity indicated with the, uh, with the ruler, not just a descendant of David, but now Deity. Isaiah 9-6, of course, combines both the humanity and deity together. Um, so it goes on to, uh, to describe this. And so here we have a clear message related to, uh, the Messiah. Now he says, I will make a, the lame a remnant, the outcast a strong nation, the Lord will reign over them from now and forever. And you, uh, O Tower of the Flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion to you shall I come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? He says, Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. That's a description of the uh, tribulation period leading up to the birth of the kingdom. Uh, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, for a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. Now, this is... Uh, uh, Referring back to the judgment that will come upon them that occurred in the past, so it is out of at the end of verse 12 we says uh, this judgment is he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor, that is the language um, that is picked up by John in in Luke 3:9 uh, related to this kind of judgment. Now. So he puts that judge, he recognizes that what is going on is related to this judgment that's announced in the Old Testament that must precede the uh, establishment of the kingdom. Now, John's message is expanded. We don't have the, the phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in Luke's account of John's message. So, But when we look at the parallel passage in Matthew 3, uh, 1 and 2, we see that his message is repent uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now Jesus then sends out his disciples and Luke records this in Luke chapter six and we have uh uh hmm, Eddie, somewhere along the line, uh, I've got a something some something not turned on. Maybe you didn't turn because my computer's about to go dead. Did that do it? Yeah, they did it. Okay, don't want to run out of power. Jesus sent out his disciples to the to Judah and to to Galilee, just to the house of Israel, and it's the same message: repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the question is, how did they know what they were talking about? You can read the first three chapters of Matthew, and nowhere does it define the kingdom. You can look at the first part of Luke. Nowhere does it define the kingdom. The only way they would know what what John meant and what Jesus meant when they announced the kingdom is if they knew the promise of a kingdom in the Old Testament. And remember, I pointed out last time that when Gabriel announced to to Mary that she was going to have a child, he said, "And this is the child that." Uh, Will reign over his people and ties it directly back to the Davidic, uh, Davidic covenant and the promise there. So there's clearly this indication from the Old Testament that God has uh, uh, God has this plan to bring in the Messiah who will rule uh, over the nation. And this is the message that we have going going forward: is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that term repent takes us right back to Deuteronomy 30 when God said that when my people uh, turn and come back to me, then I will gather them from all the nations to which I have scattered them. So this sets the stage for the first part of the ministry of Jesus. That's his message. He came to Judah. He came to the house of Judah, the house of Israel, with this message that it's time to turn back to God so that the kingdom can be established. It is a legitimate offer of the kingdom. But what happens? Well, what happens is described in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Luke describes it as well, but the Matthew passage is a little more uh, detailed and a little more precise. So let's go to the Matthew passage in, um, in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, This is parallel to Luke 11, uh, uh, 37 and following. That's the uh, parallel passage in, in Luke. And you see this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where the first part of Jesus' ministry is this proclamation and offer of the kingdom. And then he hits this same point of opposition the, the, this increasing opposition and then this event happens that's described in each of the gospels where he is uh, he's healing on the sabbath and he's uh, he casts out a demon and the uh, in verse 22 of Matthew 12 one was brought to him who's demon possessed blind and mute and he heals him and the multitude say what could this be the son of david so they understand what's going on here from an Old Testament framework. They understand what the promise is that David would have a son, and when he came, he would be the evidence would be the, his credentials would be that he would be um, healing, he would be giving sight to the blind, healing the lame, uh, healing the lepers, and so they're saying, "Wow, look at this guy! We've never seen anybody do this. He's casting out demons. He's doing all the things that Isaiah said the Messiah would do." Uh, is this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, No, this fellow uh, can't cast out demons except by Beelzebub, which is a, another term, uh pejorative term, a rather nasty, insultive term for the devil from a word meaning uh, Lord Baal, Baal. They changed it to Beelzebub, which means Lord of the flies, the flies that circle around a pile of dung. So it was uh, just a... Uh, uh, just an insulting nickname for, for the devil, uh, Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So what he's saying is Jesus isn't doing this by the power of the Spirit. There's nothing divine about him. Uh, he's just doing this by the power of the devil. And so then Jesus uh, rebukes them in the next uh, few verses, talking about how a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And then Jesus concludes in verse thirty one with a with a powerful punch. Wait a minute I thought I had another slide I it? oh, I know what happened when the battery thing when it stopped okay so um uh, The issue that Jesus is pointing out that as the Son of Man, notice in verse 8 he uses his title, Son of Man. Again and again he refers to him as Son of Man. This takes you back to the Daniel 7 passage. He's clearly uh, making people recognize he is that individual spoken of in Daniel. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, earlier in the uh, controversy in the first part of the chapter. Then in verse uh, 31 he says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. On um, verse 32, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, again, that's pulling in Daniel 7, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. What is this age? He wasn't in the church age, was he? He's before the cross. and the age to come... Because the church age hasn't really been announced yet. He doesn't get there till Matthew 18. He's really talking about the Messianic. Um, uh, well, he actually, when he talks about the age to come, he's talking about the, the church age. Um, and he says that it won't be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come, which is the church age. Now, what's the, this sin? Because people get all confused about this unforgivable sin. Question. I want you, I want you to think with me on this. Did Jesus die for every sin? Yeah, either he did or he didn't. If he didn't die for every sin, then the atonement is limited somehow. But Jesus paid for every sin. Did he pay for the sin, uh, pay the price on the cross for the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You're saying, oh, that's a trick question. (laughs) Did he die for every sin or not? Yes, yes. If he died and paid the penalty for every sin, then that means he paid the penalty for for every sin, including the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, wait a minute. It says he can't won't be forgiven. Him. How many different kinds of forgiveness are there? Back to our study in Hebrews. There are four kinds of forgiveness. There's the legal forensic forgiveness that Jesus paid on the cross that wipes out every sin. That's number one. Then there is the second kind of uh, forgiveness. Which is positional forgiveness? We have when we when a person trusts Christ and that uh, and he is forgiven and placed in the body of Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which comes into this as well. The third kind of forgiveness is the kind of forgiveness we experience when we confess our sins. It's already been wiped out. Remember, forgiveness means it's eradicated. Are we talking about when? So when Jesus says this sin won't be forgiven them, is he talking about? soteriological forgiveness, or is he talking about historical forgiveness? He's talking about historical forgiveness. He's not talking about forgiveness between them and God. He's talking about historical forgiveness that as the leadership in Israel, this this controversy, this crisis between Jesus and the leadership representing the corporate entity of Israel, has said, we're rejecting you as the Messiah. You are not the Messiah. And he says, if you reject me as the Messiah, then there, this is irreversible. 70 A.D. is coming. You can't avoid it now. That's what he's talking about. It's historical. It's not it's not eternal forgiveness. He's talking about historical forgiveness, that the, the, only the generation at that time could commit this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And once they did that and they rejected Jesus, rejected his credentials, claimed that he just did this in the power of, uh, 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 of Satan, then what that does, it sets them on an irrevocable course to the cross, and once they crucify the Messiah and then they, afterwards they don't, they're not going to accept him, it sets them on an irrevocable course to the ultimate fifth cycle of discipline in AD 70. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about eternal forgiveness. He's talking about forgiveness in history that you're, you're going to set the course of the nation against God and we're not going to be able to turn back from this. So that's what he's talking about when he speaks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that it's not going to be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come, which is the church age. So it's not going to be until when. That for, that sin is going to be forgiven Israel when? When they gather in, in the uh, area of Petra, and they call upon the name of Jesus. That's what Jesus said. I won't come again until you get, call, uh, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At the end of Matthew chapter 23. So Jesus offers the kingdom and now they reject it. That's what happens here. Because they've rejected it, it's postponed. It's, he's not going to say, okay, I'm going to give it to you in a spiritual form. He says, no, you, you, I was going to give you this. You rejected it. I'm going to postpone. Uh, giving it to you. He also said, talks to them about the fact that they've rejected the sign. You're going to, you ask for a sign, and the sign's given you of, of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the who? The Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he answered and said to them, He who sows, uh, well, that's Matthew thirteen thirty-seven, 37, uh, but in that parable of sower, he refers to himself again as the Son of Man. So that's the, the point that he's making here, is that he is the Son of Man. Now, Matthew chapter 12, what happens? Matthew 12, they reject him. They say, your power is not God's power. You're not the Messiah. You're just getting your power from the devil. We reject your, offer, your kingdom, and we reject you. What happens in Matthew 13? After that, he leaves, and he goes to the disciples, and he starts teaching them in Parables. Why does he teach them in parables? In verse uh, 10, the disciples, after he gives, all the, gives these parables, the disciples finally stop him and say, why do, you, why do you keep talking to us in parables? We're not really sure what you're talking about. And he answered in verse 11 and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the what? The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now this phrase mean, indicates mysteries related to, To the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to give you unrevealed information. Nobody's ever heard this before. I'm going to give you new data about the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they just rejected the kingdom. The the Pharisees just rejected the offer of the kingdom. So now we're going to go to plan B. And plan B is the kingdom's not coming right now. Something's going to come between now and and the establishment of the kingdom. So now I'm going to give you uh, plan B, and this is what the this is new information, previously unrevealed information about the um, uh, mysteries of the kingdom but i 'm giving it to you, but it hasn 't been revealed to them so i 'm going to give it to you in code language that 's a parable it 's a story i 'm going to give it to you in code language so that you can understand it, but they can't. So what Jesus is doing at this point is he 's cloaking his teaching, in a way, through parables, so that the Pharisees can't understand it. And he says, uh, in verse 12, "...for whoever has to him more will be given." What's he talking about? Having what? To whoever has revelation and accepts it, more will be given. To Whoever has information and accepted information about the kingdom, more revelation is going to be given. Whoever has to him, more will be given." And he will have abundance. He's talking about abundance of revelation. But whoever does not have, whoever is, in other words, who's ever rejected information about the kingdom, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And then he quotes from uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. Um, which talks about how those who are in negative volition just won't understand. You've all had that experience. You try to communicate to people uh, what you learn in Bible class, and they just look at you like you just grew two horns and a tail. And that's how the Pharisees were looking at Jesus. So why should we be surprised? So in verse 18, Jesus begins to explain uh, the parables. And the first one he explains is the parable of the sower. Some people call it the parable of the soils. Um, and this is, you know, I've never really taught this. I've never been happy. Uh, and over the last few years, I've worked through a lot of issues related to these parables. And I don't think, this isn't talking about the gospel. Everybody in the world wants to go to these, the parable of the soils to talk about salvation. It's not talking about salvation. Last year, uh, I met with a group of pastors uh, here on Thursday mornings, and we did a long study on the kingdom uh, and, and all this uh, the use of the word and the theology and everything in the, in the gospels, and uh, we came to uh, we all came to the same conclusion: when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart What did, what, what did Jesus just say back in verse twelve? Whoever has to him more will be given, but whoever does not have even what he has. Is taken away. What does he have? He has whatever information he has about the kingdom. If you're positive to it, you're going to be given more. If you're negative to it, even what you have is going to get lost. So the parable of the soils is talking about how people receive the revelation, the information about the kingdom, not about the gospel. We're not talking about people getting saved here. So he who re, so you have these three different p- people who re- receive the the information about the kingdom in different levels and so the point that the, the Lord is making here is that the one who receives seed on the good ground and hears the word and understands it he knows that that's what uh, he said in verse 12. Whoever has to him, more will be given. Whoever receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces. The bearing of fruit isn't divine good. It's not good words. It's not application of doctrine. The bearing of fruit is getting more revelation about the kingdom, understanding it more. It is what what Jesus said in verse eleven it 's been given you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but them it hasn 't been given for whoever ha- whoever has more will be given, so the fruit from this seed is more information on the kingdom, and so this is what Jesus is going to be talking about is what lies in the period between the first advent and the second advent he's going to begin to describe that. And then he goes into the next three parables, and he talks about the wheat and the tares in uh, verses uh, twenty four and following and when he he talks about the man who sowed good seed, this is the comparable to the man sowing good seed before it's the uh, message uh, information about the kingdom, and some come and steal the the someone comes and steals. The seed and then um, uh, the other, uh, the seed produces, you know, some of the seed grows up tares and some of the seed grows up, uh, grows up wheat. But it is not until there is a judgment that you can separate them. So this is all talking about the period of time before the kingdom comes, before the judgment comes. What did we already, already establish by Daniel 7? There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be the tribulation. There's going to be a judgment. Then the Son of Man receives the kingdom. So at the end of the parable of the wheat and the tares, that is when a judgment occurs. The judgment occurs before the kingdom is established. So he's talking about the fact that during the intervening period, good and evil are going to coexist in this intervening period, and it's not going to be until uh, the time of the harvest, is judgment that occurs, which is at the end of the tribulation period, that there's going to be a separation between the wheat and the tares. And then he goes into the parable of the mustard seed, which talks about the growth of the kingdom, and it shows how the kingdom is going the message of the kingdom is going to be received outwardly by men and I'll come back and talk about that there's a lot of information here and this gets very confusing for a lot of people but these all these parables fit together and the one theme that they have is what Jesus is talking about here is that there's now going to be a period between the first advent and the establishment of the kingdom and how That period of history is going to be characterized, and then the kingdom is is going to come back. Now, this isn't a, you know, maybe new view for some of you. It's not a new view. This is there there was a um, Lutheran pastor uh, in the um, named George N. H. Peters. I'd have liked to have known this guy. He was an itinerant Lutheran preacher who never had two nickels to rub together in Ohio. Had it, wrote a three, I've got it in hardback, three volume work. Each volume's about this thick, and it's in like eight point print. And it is the exhaustive treatment of the, of, of the, of the, the whole doctrine of the kingdom in scripture. And he didn't have enough, he, as an itinerant Lutheran pastor, he never had enough money to buy paper. And he wrote it on paper scraps. Just remarkable. I mean, he didn't have a computer. He didn't have Microsoft Word. He didn't have Logos or anything else. He just had his Bible and his concordance and a good brain and a lot of pencils and a lot of scraps of paper. And he wrote that. And it's pretty much summarized in Alvin McLean's book on the greatness of the kingdom. He was a theologian taught in the theology department at Grace Seminary in Winona Lake. And it is a common view among uh, dispensationalists, but it is not one that is today, I find, that most people are aware of. So this is the interpretation of, of uh, Matthew chapter 13, and we'll come back next time, which will be the Tuesday before uh, before Christmas, since next week I'll be in Washington, D.C., uh, and we'll finish this up. And that will set the stage for understanding what Jesus is talking about when he tells, t- starts telling the disciples, or what Luke's talking about when Jesus is t- talking to the disciples about the things concerning the kingdom uh, in those 40 days between the, uh, the uh, resurrection and the ascension. And so we'll come back and look at it at that time, and I'm sure there'll be people with questions. You know, you can always write questions down on a piece of paper, give them to me, email them to me, uh, whatever, and... Um, as I always say, people who ask questions, you may think they're not good questions, but if you have that question, I bet you four other people have the same question. And if those questions go unanswered and you're confused, then I haven't done my job teaching, so I always like to get questions. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study these things this evening and to come to a little bit greater understanding, perhaps, of the, uh, your kingdom and its progress, the establishment of it, the, the prophecies related to it, and then the offer of it in the uh, ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus, and then its postponement, and then the final establishment of it when Jesus comes back. And so, Father, we pray that as we look forward to that as our destiny, that we can live today in light of that kingdom and our future uh, time to rule and reign with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.